Good morning. Welcome to the online teaching ministry of New Hope Presbyterian Church in Kent, Washington. My name is Tommy Allen. I'm the lead pastor here. And this morning we'll continue along in our series in the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the title of today's sermon is The Young Hero and the Terrible Giant. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 17. And of course, it's the story of David and Goliath. But before we jump into that text and before we start uh, the teaching time, I thought I would uh, begin by saying, first of all, it's really helpful to us if you like these sermons, like if you like it or not, and you share them and you subscribe. I think YouTube like pushes them out a little more. And the other thing, before we continue on with the teaching time, I thought I would lead us through a confession of sin. So how it works is we typically, if we were together, we would confess our sins together. And then afterward, I would give you a moment to confess your sins silently. So you can do that however you like at home. But right now, let me lead us in prayer. Merciful Father, as you have promised, give us your goodness in place of our wickedness. Keep us from all backbiting, from all exaggerating the sins of others. Hear not the cry of our enemies, just as we would not listen to the slandering and accusing of others. Take from our souls the heavy burden of all our sins, so that with a clear, joyful, and sincere conscience, we may endure and do all things and live and die fully confident of your mercy. Amen and amen. So at this point, if you have confessed your sins, it's my privilege as a minister of the gospel to say, know that you are forgiven and be at peace. Amen and amen. Let me pray again as we begin this time. Father, I do pray that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. So, wow. Today's text, 1 Samuel 17, is, it's just one of the most epic stories in the whole Bible. It's so famous, in fact, like you can't, everyone, I bet you if you went to anyone, it, it, the, go to the grocery store, go to the, any place, and say, what is David and Goliath about? People would at least know that it's some little guy beat some big guy, and it's such a big thing that like whenever we see stories about it on the news you hear david and goliath story and it's always about a little person who beat like a big corporation or something like that so if you remember we've been talking about first samuel for a couple weeks now and in this book the purpose of the book of first samuel was basically to to make the case that israel not only needs a king but they need a king like david specifically like David. And today they find out why. Today is sort of like the the, the, the floodgates of, of everything David opens up. In fact, today is the day David loses his anonymity. I remember years ago when I started, we, we started attending our church and no one knew who I was. I had been a pastor before and I'd done some things. I'd written some things before and people would meet me and they would say, oh, Tommy Allen, seems like I've heard of a guy. Are you familiar with him? And I'd say, yeah, I'm familiar with him. I would never say that I'm the guy. Um, and I remember when I first preached here, uh, you know, 15 years ago or more, and I was leaving the house and Judy said, you know, Tommy, how do you, how do you feel this morning? You haven't talked for a couple of years. And I said, I'm, I'm most nervous about losing my anonymity. And I did. Um, 
David today loses his anonymity. He loses it. He's not just a little shepherd boy. After today, everything becomes big for David. His problems become big. His glory becomes big. His victories become big. Everything just sort of boom, explodes with compound interest. So we're going to look at three things today as we consider the story of David and Goliath. We're going to look at a giant problem. We're going to look at a great question and a huge win. Notice all the puns there intentional. So a giant problem, verses 1 through 11, says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and the Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span, and he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze hung between his shoulders. The haft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come to draw out for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be his servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. A giant problem. What's the problem here? Well, first, it's helpful to understand the, the way the Philistines' worldview worked. The Philistines and Israel, they're sort of constant antagonists throughout the Old Testament. And the way the Philistines worked was sort of how the Romans would later work. The Philistines didn't just come through an area and sort of rape and pillage and burn everything down. The goal of the Philistines was not to, to basically rape and pillage, but it was to conquer and tax. In other words, they wanted to make people into their vassals or their slaves, not to just kill them. So as the Philistine army is looking across at Israel's army, they're not looking necessarily just at enemies. They're looking at a bunch of potential taxpayers. And so they don't want to kill them. And so what they did was they would they had this thing of representative combat. If they could just send one person out and get the other army to send one person out, then they only would lose one person either side. And so if Israel only lost one person, all these men are still alive and they can pay taxes and they can be slaves of the Philistines, all this stuff. That's what's behind the this representative combat. In fact, Israel's probably not very familiar with it because Goliath has to explain it to them, right? He, he says basically how it works is what, what's going to happen. Um, you, uh, I'll be out here and you send one man. And if I prevail against him and kill him, you shall be our servants and serve us and you know, vice versa. So Goliath comes out and he's an enormous Goliath. He is either six foot nine or nine feet six. And I, given the weight of all his equipment and his armor is about 125 pounds. And I think he was probably more nine foot six. And in fact, the Philistines have five giants. If you look at second Samuel, I think it's chapter 21 or 26. Um, 
there are four other giants besides Goliath. One of them is his brother. And so these giants, you know, there's a lot of, about giants in the Old Testament. There's a lot about giants. If you go to YouTube and just look up giants, there's giants everywhere. And all of that to say is Goliath comes out and he taunts Israel and he is a giant and he is imposing. It reminds me of a, remember, remember the first Lord of the Rings where Boromir looks up, they're about to get in a fight and he says, they have a cave troll, right? He's huge. And yet Goliath isn't the giant problem. Goliath, Goliath is a problem, but he's not the giant problem. What's the giant problem at the beginning of this story? The giant problem at the beginning of this story is Saul. Remember verse 11 said this, so Goliath comes out, he says, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Give me a man that we may fight together. And then verse 11 says, when Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul is the giant problem in Israel. Why is Saul the giant problem in Israel? Well, because Saul is Israel's king. And what is the job of the king? The job of the king is to represent the people. The job of the people, of the king is to fight on behalf of his people. The job of the king is to defend his people. So on day one, when Goliath, the Philistines sent their champion out and said, who will fight me? At very least, if no one else stepped up, Saul should have stepped up. Now, mind you, Saul was a big man himself. He was, he was no slouch. And so Saul himself should have stood up and said, I am the king of Israel. I am the representative of Israel. I will fight on Israel's behalf. And yet we see Saul and he's cowering in his tent. How afraid is Saul? Saul is so afraid that he is trying to find someone else that he can pay to, to fight this battle for him. Verse 26, when David's around, he, it, and it says all the men were afraid and the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make him his father's house free in Israel. So Saul is so afraid of Goliath, he is willing to pay some person, whoever else will fight them, him besides him. He, he will give his daughter in marriage, he'll make the person wealthy, and his family won't have to ever pay taxes again. That's how afraid Saul is. And we only can imagine what he offered before this, right? It's been going on for about 40 days. But nonetheless, Saul is afraid, and that's the giant problem. Can you imagine the soldiers sitting around, which soldiers, right? If, if a soldier is not, the, the, the saying is, if a soldier's not happy unless he's complaining, imagine the soldiers complaining and saying, you know, wow, I thought like the king was supposed to like step up and go out and fight for us, especially in these representative combat things, because he, isn't he our representative? Well, little did they know that their true king, the, the real king, the one after God's own heart was actually about to step up and save them, except no one recognized him because he was an outsider. He wasn't the one that they expected. Sound familiar? So you go from a giant problem to a great question. Notice verse 12, it says, Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. And then verse 12 says, now David, or it could say, but David, right? In other words, what you see in the story of, of David and Goliath, among other things, is a comparison between Saul and David. So on one hand, Saul is cowering in his tent, afraid. David is, is doing his job. He's taking care of his sheep. And basically how it worked in the Old Testament, if you were close enough to the battle and you were a family of soldiers, you were responsible to feed your own kids. And so 
David's father sends David to the to the battle lines to help his brothers out, to send him some food and to to bring the commanders some cheese and to bring back a report for Jesse. And so David gets there just as um, all of this stuff is starting to happen again, that Goliath is coming out and he's beginning to taunt again. That, that's exactly when David arrives. And it says in verse 20, David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took provisions and went as Jesse had commanded. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting a war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up to the ranks of the Philistines and spoke to them the same words as before. And then I love the next line. It says, and David heard him. And it's like, if this was a movie, it'd be like, and David heard him. <whistles> right, David, that, that, that you, where that's supposed to be this dramatic tension that David was there and David heard the taunt. David heard the trash talk. And now David is going to ask a great question. It says in verse 26, and David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? And then the great question, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That's a great question, David. Now, when David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He's not basically saying, is, is he dirty or being uncircumcised is being dirty. But what he's saying is, that the mark of the covenant of Israel is circumcision. You're either inside the covenant and under the promises and protection of Yahweh, or you're outside the covenant. And if you're outside the covenant, you don't have any hope. And David says, so who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? And basically, um, the, the question is asking that, that if the promises of God are true, and if, and if his protection is true, why are you guys all cowering around? That's just a great question, at least if you're a believer, right? If, 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 all, if, if everything God says is true, why are you cowering? Why doesn't someone just go out and fight this guy? And so David, his, what happens is David immediately runs into two obstacles. What are the two obstacles that David runs into? Like you, you get this idea that David's like, well, who's going to fight him? I'll fight him. And he has two immediate obstacles. They, are, they happen to be people. And basically, David's first obstacle are unbelieving, antagonistic church people. Now, why am I saying they're unbelieving, antagonistic church people? Well, it's because they, obviously the church wasn't here, but it's religious people. Everyone that is a problem or an obstacle to David is someone who is on the inside who should have known better. In other words, they, got a, they have a battle on the outside, and you'd think that all the people on the inside would be on the same page, but they're not. They, they actually have their obstacles to David accomplishing his mission. And so the first obstacle is his brother, Eliab. Notice it says in verse 28, it says, Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? <laughs> Was it not but a word or a question? Right? You can just imagine David being a 16-year-old kid probably. You know, like, I can't even ask a question. 
Now, why, what is the issue with Eliab? Well, one, we remember Eliab is the oldest. Eliab it was big. Eliab was attractive. And Eliab was passed over to be king when Samuel came to anoint them. So I don't know if he's bitter about that. We don't know what's going on. But what we do know is he's unbelieving and antagonistic. You see, if he had been believing, if he had faith, if he, if he was uh, really relied on the promises of God, as soon as David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to taunt the armies of the living God, his older brother Eliab should have just repented. He should have said, wow, that's a great question. Why didn't I ever think about that? Hey, fellas, listen to my little brother. If we had asked this question, 39 days ago, we could have gone home. We could have seen our wife a month ago. And yet no one has asked that question. Instead of doing that, he is antagonistic toward David. And he says, who do you think you are? And he accuses him, you've just come down here because you want to see this battle and you want to see the salacious details. No. David keeps talking anyway. And as David keeps talking, other people hear about him. And desperate Saul sends for him. You can just imagine Saul hearing a rumor. Someone is, is talking about going to fight Goliath. Bring him here. Bring him here. And I imagine Saul was a little bit surprised when David showed up and he was a kid. Notice in verse 31, it says, when they spoke the words, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So you can imagine Saul looks at David. Saul is enormous. Saul is a, is, was a head taller than anyone in Israel. He's looking down at this kid, and this kid says, let no one's heart fail because of it, this Philistine. I will fight him. And Saul, first of all, remember we learned last week that, that not to look at the outward appearance, but the inward appearance. Verse 33, it says, and Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. In other words, Saul's had, in some ways he has good intentions. He doesn't. He's like David. You're too small. He's a warrior. You're not. He he's old and hardened, and you're not. He's well intentioned, but he's an obstacle nonetheless. How does David um, meet that objection? Well, he meets the objection by telling Saul how he knows that God is going to take care of this battle for him. It says in verse 34, he says, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. I think King James says, I smote him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. In verse 37 is key. David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. That to me is this great, awesome line. Because basically what David is saying is he's saying that my confidence is rooted in God's past faithfulness to me. In other words, David, on one hand, he's been, he's been responsible for small things, and now he's getting ready to be put in charge of something big. He has won small battles, and now he, they've prepared him for a large battle. But David says, even though I was responsible for fighting those things, it was the Lord 
who delivered me. And the same Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David's past experience of the faithfulness of God gives him confidence for the future. Now, the same is true for us. In other words, can you think back on a time when you have experienced God's faithfulness, even once? I can think of, of, if I sat down and started writing, I could probably write all day of ways God has been faithful to me to the past in big ways, but also ways that he's faithful to me just every day. The sun comes up every day, whether I, you know, no matter what I do, um, those kinds of things. God is faithful. And David says, because he was faithful in the past, I assume he's going to be faithful in the future. Now, there's a word that Charles Spurgeon used to say to, to the older members of his congregation. He used to say, those of you who have experienced more of God's faithfulness should be more willing to take risks for the kingdom of God. In, in other words, Spurgeon would say almost it, it, opposite of the way we experience things today. Typically, as we get older, we get a little bit more fearful. We get a bit, little bit more uh, conservative. And Spurgeon said that if you've experienced God's faithfulness for more years, you should actually be more crazy. You should be more willing to take risks because you know he's going to be faithful to you. That's something I have to remind myself of all the time, that because I know that God has been faithful in the past, besides all of his promises, David's just talking about his experience. Because of my experience of God's faithfulness in the past, I assume he is going to be faithful in the future. And think of all the things that applies to. I mean, think of just the whole issue of the pandemic that we're in right now. Are we, 10 years from now, are we going to look back and say, wow, God was faithful then. He was faithful through that. I promise you that we will say that. So not only was his confidence rooted in God's faithfulness, but his confidence was rooted in his, his preparation. Remember, his brother sneered at him and said, oh, you were taking care of those few little sheep. Well, that was what prepared David to fight Goliath. If he'd not been taking care of those few little sheep. He would never have been prepared to fight Goliath. I imagine he sat out there pretty boring day after day after day, and he practiced with that slingshot. And so what's interesting is that Saul is so desperate. Verse 37, he says, go and the Lord be with you. <laughs> Suddenly Saul has religion because this, what David says has, has gotten his attention. And he's like, well, we might as well. Now on one hand, that, I guess that's great. You could view it as Saul having a bit of faith here. Um, on the other hand, Saul is placing all of Israel's future in the hands of this unknown kid who has just told him that I can do it. Now, either Saul has incredibly faithful or he is incredibly desperate. I think he's desperate. And he tells David, go, you can go. He said, but before you go, let me help you out here. And he says, um, in verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. And David said, I cannot go with these for I've not tested them. So David put them off. I mean, think about it. So David is a kid. He's not particularly big, we know from last chapter. And Saul is almost a giant. And so Saul says, here, take all of my stuff, all this advanced technology and go, and maybe this will help you out. And David tries them and he's like, I can't walk with this stuff. In other words, David sticks with what he knows, which is usually pretty wise situation. 
It says in verse 40, it says, Then he took off, took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. So David is going to fight. And from Goliath's perspective, from Israel's perspective, he's got almost nothing. He has five smooth stones. That's it. But one of those stones is all it's going to take to get for David and for Israel a huge win. So look at verse 42. Verse 41 says, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now, every time when I preach, I'm teaching, especially these stories, I try and think of things from all the characters' perspective. So if you think about this story, this particular, this section from Goliath's perspective, Goliath had to have walked out on the battlefield and seen David coming toward him, this teenager who doesn't even really have weapons with him, and thought, I, there's, I just, there's no way I can win this. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm talking more psychologically. Like, if you know anything about the military, one of the things, the, the way the, the military functions, at least the army did, is you're constantly trash-talking people. You're constantly razzing people. You're constantly giving people a hard time. And so I can only imagine Goliath goes out onto the battlefield, and he is expecting to see someone like Saul. He's expecting to see the very biggest and the very best that Israel can provide, and he sees a kid coming out. And so first way he's going to lose this is he walks out and his buddies are going to give him a hard time and say, oh, Goliath, look how afraid of you they are. They sent a teenager out against you, LOLOL. No, second way is that Goliath kills David. And if he kills David, then he's going to go back and the guys are going to, again, trash talk him. And they're going to go, that was really hard, Goliath. What are they going to send a Pomeranian after you next time? No. Or, I mean, unlikely scenario number three is he actually is killed by this teenager. That's what happens, by the way. But nonetheless, Goliath disdains this. He's like, come, you got to be kidding me. This is all you got. And, and he says, my dog, you come at me with sticks. And what we know because we can see the, we, we can read this, is that theologically speaking, Goliath actually has lost already. You could stop this at verse 34 and predict the outcome, or verse 43 and predict the outcome. Why do I say that? Look at what verse 43 says again at the very end. It says, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods, that is by Goliath's gods. And Goliath's gods would have probably been Dagon and Ashtaroth. And on one hand, we know from earlier in this book that, that Yahweh has already defeated Dagon a number of times. And what is more important to get here is you, if you remember back when we talked about Abraham and with Abraham and God came and, and basically said, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Do you remember what he attached to that? He said, and whoever blesses you will be blessed and whoever curses you will be cursed. And in other words, whoever blesses the blessing bearer is going to be blessed, and whoever curses the blessing bearer will be cursed. And David is now the blessing bearer. And it says, it doesn't just say that the Philistine cursed Yahweh. It says the Philistine cursed David 
by his gods. Now, interestingly enough, that would have been considered blasphemy. And do you know what the penalty is in Leviticus 24 for blasphemy in the law? The penalty for blasphemy is stoning. Get it? That's what's coming next. Goliath has no idea that he's about to receive a practical application of the law of Israel. You blaspheme the blessing bearer, you get stoned. Now, in his case, it's just one, probably a small one, but nonetheless, look what happens. It says in verse 44, the Philistines said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Now, this is like the, the final uh, point of no return for David. He's out there. And Goliath has just laid down what he's going to do. He's going to kill him. He's going to give his flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. In other words, he's, he's not just going to kill him, but he's going to humiliate him and defile him. And in Israel, and, and still to this day for Muslims or, or Israelis, um, having your body defiled after death is a really bad thing. And it's a really scary thing. So at this point, this is the point where David, if he's going to step away from the fight, he might want to step away if, if he didn't really believe all the stuff he said before. I remember when I was in a free fall parachute school in the army and, and I was uh, surprised, frankly, because you spend a week laying on picnic tables learning how to fly. And then you spend a week in a wind tunnel learning how to fly. And it's, it is, and it's Rangers and Special Forces and Delta, all these like guys who are very good and very like great soldiers. And some guys, when we went up for a first jump, they went to the edge of the plane and they're like, nope, I'm good. Like done. David could have done that here. He could have got up there and said, whoa, now that I'm out here, the thought of having my birds, flesh fed to the birds and being fed to the beast, I'm done. So I'll take it away. He doesn't. What David does is he takes the, the trash talk and the taunting to a whole different level. Notice how David responds to him. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts and the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. So the first thing David replied, notice he says in verse 46, he says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Now, first thing David says is he says, I'm not only going to kill you, but I'm going to kill you and I'm going to cut off your head with your own sword. That's implied because later they make the, the, author makes a point that David didn't bring a sword to the fight. He took Goliath's sword and cut Goliath's head off with his own sword. So first thing, I'm going to kill you with your own sword. And then the second thing is even more interesting. He says, I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. In other words, Goliath came out and told David, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David says, here's how, here's the deal. Um, you want to do representative combat. That means whatever happens to you happens to everyone else. And so I'm going to give not only your flesh to the birds and to the beasts, but I'm going to give the flesh of all the Philistines to, to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. That's a pretty big boast, frankly, until you see the purpose. David, David attaches to all this the purpose 
of this battle to begin with? What's the purpose? Why is David even fighting Goliath? Why, why is this in the Bible? What is David's perspective on this? David says this, the purpose of this battle at the end of verse 46, he says that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel in verse 47, and that all this assembly, I assume he's pointing back at Israel, all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. In other words, David says there's this one battle. There are basically two applications. Application number one, that the world may know that there is a God in Israel. That's sort of Old Testament evangelism, right? That David's saying the reason we're fighting this and the outcome is going to be so that the world knows that there is a God in Israel and so that this assembly, the people standing behind me cowering, will know that God doesn't save by sword or spear. David is the representative who is fulfilling both of those tasks. David risked his life. Think about this. David risked his life against the greatest threat facing Israel at the time so that the world could know that Yahweh was, was real, that there was a God in Israel, and that so that Israel would know that God doesn't save by spear or by, by javelin or anything like that, but he saves by according to his promise and his power. And that is, is impressive until you consider um, the work of David's greater descendant, Jesus. You see, while David risked his life so that the world may know that there's a God in Israel, Jesus actually gave his life so that the world may know Israel's God. David risked his life so that Israel would know that, that God doesn't save by sword or spear. Jesus actually gave his life so that his people would know that God doesn't save by sword or by spear or by good works or by the right presidential candidate. Jesus gave his life so that the world may know and so that God's people would know that God saves by grace through faith alone in the finished work of his son. Do you believe that? Do, do, if, if you're not a Christian, do you, do you believe that Jesus gave his life? Or would you believe, would you consider that Jesus gave his life so that you might have life? That Jesus rose again from the dead so that you might rise again someday and have a relationship with Israel's God, who is the God of the whole world. And if you are a Christian, when you, when you feel down, when you feel attacked, when you feel you're in the middle of a battle and your first inclination is to get your spear, to get your, your javelin, to, to, to rely on the right presidential candidate, to rely on your good works, are you reminded when you consider the cross that it's not about that? It's about the fact that your representative has already won the greatest battle ever for you. He has defeated death and sin and the curse. And because of that, you bear none of them. So at this point, you could be done with this text because when, when you actually see the battle, it, the battle is so quick here that if you blink, you would miss it. Notice what it says in verse 48. It says, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. That's it. 
Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. When David ran, then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And the Philistines saw their champion dead. They fled and Israel pursues them. David ultimately takes um, Goliath's head to Jerusalem and buries it outside the camp. And there's a lot of like lower about that, that Golgotha, right? Goliath and Gath, Golgotha, the place of the skull that Goliath's head might be buried under the where Jesus was crucified. None of that matters. What matters ultimately is the fact that David won here. And now that David has won, David has lost his anonymity. Now David's kingship will begin to define all of Israel and ultimately um, the, the great heir who would come from him. And so let me finish by reading the way the Jesus storybook finishes this up. It says, now David put a stone in his sling and swung it around and let it go. The little stone flew whiz like a bullet through the air and struck Goliath thud right between the eyes. Goliath stopped laughing. He stumbled and staggered and crash. He fell dead. When the Philistines saw Goliath was dead, they ran away. And when God's people saw them running away, they cheered. God had saved his people. David was a hero. Many years later, God would send his people another young hero to fight for them and to save them. But this hero would fight the greatest battle the world has ever known. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray now that you would, um, you would work these truths into our heart, that we would not uh, rely on spear or sword or princes or on horses, but we would rely on your promises and the fact that you have been faithful to us in the past. I pray um, that you would end um, this pandemic, that you would end all of the restrictions of the pandemic. But in the meantime, I pray that you would bathe your people uh, in the knowledge of your faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. At this point, if we were meeting in person together, we would um, have a doxology and we would take an offering and, and do an offertory. And we're obviously not doing that right now. Um, but if you're interested in giving to the Ministry of New Hope, you can find the information in the comments section or in the discussion section below. And also, um, we're going to finish this morning with a catechism question from the shorter catechism about the Jesus as our king. So if you want to follow along with that, you can. It's The question is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 26. And the question is this, how does Christ fill the office of a king? Answer, Christ fills the office of a king in making us his willing subjects, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Now, let me send you from this place with this benediction, saying that I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing is able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have a great week. Amen and amen.